happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 195 for October 21st, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus here in snowy Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well and interested to hear a little bit more about that snow. So are you saying there may be cold weather headed to other parts of uh, the greater United States? It very well could be. It's been snowing in parts of Montana for the past 48 hours. It hit Missoula tonight, and then our current forecasted low on Sunday is negative four degrees. So we clearly have some winter weather heading to the northern Rocky Mountain region. All right. Well, not to skip my introduction, but I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, also known as the fifth and sixth grade media literacy teacher and the fifth grade Spanish teacher. So, you know, that title is long, but coming to you from Oklahoma city where I'm pretty sure we hit 80 plus degrees today, uh, but it's supposed to cool down a little bit and, um, you know, fall break is over and we're looking forward to, uh, Thanksgiving, but it's a ways, it's a ways away. So we've got the end of the trimester coming on November 5th, which will mean a switch over for my uh, media literacy classes. And we are continuing to see numbers in the news uh, going up as far as COVID, but school is continuing to meet face to face and things are continuing to go really well there. So what are we going to talk about tonight in addition to quick little weather updates for Montana. I understand with the flag that you'll be declaring a formal electoral campaign (laughs) tonight. Is that, is that right? Or is that not? Uh, Unless the office is bearded Montanan, I'm not entirely sure that I would want an elected office right now, but I am flying my Montana flag proudly uh, in my office. I've been working, I think we've mentioned several times in the past, that now that I'm working at home full-time, it probably will be for the foreseeable future, I've been working on my home office before I had a a quaint but kind of dank office in in the basement of our home that kind of smelled like a basement office, and my wife and I decided to take a couple spare bedrooms that were unlikely to be filled for the, again, foreseeable future and turn them into our kind of ideal home offices. And so I had bought a Montana flag a couple months ago and uh, now had a means of hanging it up. So I got my iron out tonight, made sure it was nice and and crisp and ironed. And there it is, the Montana flag. But this show's also not about flags. So tonight's topics include uh, privacy. We have some Google and Chrome OS updates. Uh, interesting article about podcasting tonight. A little meta since you're listening to it on a podcast. The so-called tech correction, as we refer to it on the show. Social media, uh, media literacy, our favorite uh, topic every week, miscellaneous. And then geek of the week, where we'll share something kind of geeky that's been on our mind in the past seven days. Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start tonight? Oh, goodness. Um, 
Why don't we – let's start with the privacy articles that you had put in from last time because we didn't sure. really jump into those, and I think that's going to lead to some good discussion. I'll, I'll let you take the lead there. Sure. Well, I guess the, the theme of, of at least two of these articles is, holy dog, this is interesting and beyond what I thought would be available to people that are trying to track you or find out more information about you. The first one is a CNET article from October 8th that talks about the police now are able to and, – and courts are, um, I wouldn't say stepping necessarily in the way, but some of the subpoenas that Google has been accepting lately don't uh, just involve things like your email or docs you may use that are stored on the wider Google system. Instead of saying, you know, did person X search for this on this date, they are actually going to Google and asking them who searched for these terms um, uh, on this date and time. So in other words, trying to uh, kind of reverse engineer searching to say that, you know, who searched, for example, in this case, it was an arson case. Um, they were looking for certain search terms and who might have searched them in, in a time and a place. And this was stunning to me, in part because the United States has a long history of protecting things like your library book record, right? Uh, if you uh, uh, are a patron of a public library, which is a, a usually a public, a publicly funded institution, the courts have been very clear that your what you read is of no business to anyone from the outside, and oftentimes the the privacy. Uh, uh, advocates are joined up by the nation's librarians who will step in and say that what you choose to read on your own time is of no one's business but your own. And so it's surprising to me this is happening, but it's also an extraordinary ask, I think, to say that if you are searching on Google, and it's obviously tied to your IP address and maybe even your Google account, if you're signed into your Google account, that that is suddenly something that police can ask for and get list of, um, you know, information in that way. And I guess I was stunned by this notion and uh, thought it was a, a massive overreach. So putting your maybe tinfoil civil libertarian hat on, Wes, any thoughts about this evolution? So my first thought is, in terms of media literacy, you know, to what degree do we have an obligation to let students and others know about this and at what age would we allow them to, <clears throat> you know, in terms of the surveillance capitalism model that is keeping, you know, Google and Facebook uh, um, among the most and, and, and Amazon really too, the most profitable you know, companies ever in the history of the planet. You know, your search history matters and, and what you say matters. My, my wife had another one of these situations where. You know, we were talking about something in the car, and then the next time she opened up uh, an app on her on her phone, I, th I think it was Facebook, because she's really not an Instagrammer. Wow, there was an ad for what we were talking about. You know, and and you'll hear these studies. They say, no, your phone's not listening. I just I've heard so many stories just like this from other people that that uh, there's no other way to explain that. So the history of things that you search for matters in terms of it's being tracked. It's being part of that opaque record that is out there in the cloud. You know, I, we, we have, interestingly, when I was tech director, I made the decision, this was interesting, to turn off the incognito window, you know, when kids are logged into their Chromebooks thinking, well, of course, you know, we want to know what their history is and not have them, not have them erase that. And of course, just 
using an incognito window in, in any browser, Chrome, Firefox, whatever, doesn't change the fact that the MAC address, but not saying Macintosh, but that's the machine address that is assigned to your Wi-Fi card or your Ethernet card, which is is unique unless you are a Uber geek with with lots of tinfoil hat, you know, experience and you're spoofing your MAC address. I don't know too many folks that do that. You know, you either have to be doing that or running a, a browser like Tor. I don't know. It just, there are times that I'm using incognito searches and I teach teachers how to do that because you need to check your Google links, right? When you're sharing something, this is happening a lot with remote learning and parents may click on it. In the case of our younger kids, they, we may not be having them log into their Google account. You know, is, are these links available, et cetera? There's reasons to be using those tools. Is there a case for teaching you know, students and others how to be anonymous online and then to be very wary and careful of the things that they search for. I was watching some documentaries um, the last couple days about, you know, right-wing extremist groups in the United States. And, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise to folks that there are things like, you know, protecting the president that the Secret Service is very interested in. You know, you don't mess around with, you know, emails or messages to the president, but even searches for certain things. Uh, maybe those include explosives. Maybe those include, you know, weapons. I mean, there are ways that you can catch the attention of um, of authorities. And so even if you're going to be doing research, let's say, into those kinds of groups, I don't know. I I think at some point we need to be aware of these things. And there, my my biggest thought is there is a point at which our government, you know, should not be equivalent and and acting equally to and and in, in the same way as is communist China or whatever you want to call China, because China right now is sort of the ultimate surveillance state. There really are no boundaries that we can see in terms of what they are collecting about their users and the ways that they're using that information to directly manipulate. And in some cases, you know, in the, in the case of the Uyghurs in Western China, and I say these words and they're being transcribed as I speak them, uh, cultural genocide, you know, if, if not an actual ethnic genocide that's happening to those folks with the use of technology tools and surveillance. So this just makes me wonder what is the line that the United States, you know, should be respecting that we in the West should be. And it's kind of sad to see that again, the tools of technology seem to really be co-opted for a more authoritarian oversight, big brotherish, you know, type surveillance. And of course we all want and need to be safe but we also have rights and there needs to be limits to what governments will do. So are you thinking that this, how would we define that line in terms of, of, of stepping over it in terms, in terms of this information? It sounds like you're thinking this passes over it because it kind of violates the, the analog equivalent, like you said, with library books and things right. like that, that, that you would have had historically people defending the right. I, yeah, I would say that, that this is clearly way over the line in that, uh, uh, well, and, and part of the argument about library books is that someone reading a library book should not be incriminating, right? It, it, that accessing knowledge should not be in itself incriminating. And I think that that's very much the case here as well. And I am, I'm concerned that 
that this becomes uh, uh, a big brothery is not even the start of it. I think it just becomes a very creepy way for law enforcement um, to, uh, to 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 do lazy investigation that uh, would probably lead to easy pointing of fingers, but not really lead to the kind of, of insight that one would need. I think to to create an ironclad case uh, to prosecute someone of a crime. Well, I've been listening to several different podcasts about artificial intelligence and specifically facial recognition. I think maybe I had, as, as one of my geeks of the week, this um, In Machines We Trust, which is a MIT tech review podcast uh, series that's just fantastic. And one of the things that they dive into are the very different ways that police organizations are either disclosing or not disclosing the ways that they use facial recognition and even that they're using them at all. And in some cases, and I'm trying to think if it's in Las, I think it's in Las Vegas, they're being very forthright. I mean, they've got so much experience, of course, right, with casinos and cameras like that. That is nothing new to the casino industry. But interestingly, the uh, I think it's the chief of police in, in Las Vegas who's interviewed. I mean, he has a philosophy or did at the time of the interview of just making sure the public knows what they're doing, being forthright about it, and then making it clear that they're not just using the the facial recognition uh, data to go make an arrest. It has to be corroborated with other kinds of things. So I, I think there's a case to be made here for advocacy groups, not just at a national level, but at a local level, really advocating for some transparency in terms of what uh, law enforcement is doing because of the cost of some of those systems, uh, and, and then they're coming down, right? Uh, was it Clearview is the one that scraped just millions and millions of social media accounts. And one of the things that's troubling is that some, some law enforcement folks will actually tweak the pictures and Photoshop eyes onto them or other things to make a hit come. And, you know, and, and then there's, of course, these cases of people who are being being arrested and very traumatically in front of their families and things like that, who, you know, turn out to be completely um, not the, you know, the, not the wrong, the, not the not the person, you know, the uh, wrongfully accused person. So I, I, I'm guessing that in addition to the media literacy side of this and helping educate folks about what is being done? I think that we also need local advocacy. The the expense of it means that you know FBI probably and and you know federal and and military you know intelligence organizations are going to have access to this kind of thing. Small town police forces maybe not so much, but we need to be having we need to be having some transparency, right? Because this is part of what. Uh, how we protect our rights in the United States is that we have a greater degree of transparency, certainly than, you know, totalitarian, uh, authoritarian or, you know, countries that uh, are, are, um, you know, not electing officials and and ostensibly don't don't have representative democracy and constitutions that guarantee uh, rights, at least nationally. So those are a couple implications. And I do think it's it's crazy crazy to think that we're going to that point your search history may lead to your arrest and it also does uh i guess give an advertisement for using a vpn more often that i you know i i don't i don't turn on vpn to search that's just never been part of my strategy for me it's a security thing i want my my internet traffic uh yes i don't particularly love it being per, uh, uh, viewed by my ISP. But at the same time, though, I'm usually turning a VPN on to, to create security in a public Wi-Fi situation. 
here's the, here's an interesting thing about this. And I want to commend to folks the Security Now podcast. I think I learned more about TCPIP and the way that the packet based internet works, you know, listening to early episodes of, of Security Now, which is part of the Twit network. When we are communicating over a switch network, we have all of the information that we're exchanging broken up into little packets and each packet has a header. And in that header, it includes the originating information. So what computer that came from. And my understanding is that typically will include the Mac address again of the, of the, of the network card, whether it's Wi-Fi or ethernet that is, is, is uh, originating the request. And then it is also going to have the, the target, um, you know, uh, address of where it's supposed to go. And then these things get sent out on different pathways and then they're put together in order. And it's incredible this works, right? I mean, we're, we're synchronously talking and Jason and I, we're in episode 195. It's just phenomenal to me that, that this works in the low latency way that it, that it does today. But my question would be, and I would have to pose this to just a few folks I know, cause this is a real geeky question. When you use a VPN, it does create a tunnel that protects like someone in your coffee shop or someone on your local network from being able to peer in and see your data and, and capture that data. But I don't think it obfuscates your identifying information and uh, you know, databases work with key fields. You, you have to have a key that connects the data. And our social security numbers have been made major keys that would connect us to, for instance, our debt and loan information and, and borrowing and history and things like that. Now our phone numbers and our email addresses are really big keys that connect us. Also, I would think that the Mac address of the devices which we use, being our phones, our computers, our tablets, probably are as well. What's interesting is our daughter was doing, it still isn't in forensics science. Um, she's probably not going to major in digital forensics. Those are folks that know the answer to that kind of a question. And so, you know, what, what of course you're hoping is that the people using this information are, are moral and ethical and are following the law and that we have laws that protect us, which we really don't have a lot of laws that protect us and, and with respect to privacy. The other thing you're hoping is that that information is not compromised and it's not hacked and then that it's not used for malicious purposes. So we need privacy law. Let's just say that as another point here, uh, because we really don't have very many legal protections here in the United States when it comes to privacy. And, um, you know, we, we need advocacy. We need some really smart geeks. I mean, I was joking with Jason about running for office, but I mean, we really do need smart geeks yeah. to be in a positions of elective office and then working for and with our elected officials so that we can have some informed law around this because we do need to have protections of rights. You know, if we don't have right protections, then the tendency is for for states and authorities uh, to, to kind of run roughshod over over folks, um, you know, civil liberties. And, and that happens historically, even when you do have things on the books, you've got to defend them and they've got to be advocated for. And we really don't have a strong privacy regime in the United States. So I would say this article and this uh, tenant, this this, um, you know, use of of data points to again the need that we have uh, for some privacy regulation and protection in the united states absolutely 
And then one other article is kind of an interesting, I guess, companion article to this. This is actually goes back to, to earlier this year. This is from Motherboard, which is the, the tech blog by Vice on January 27th. Leaked documents expose the secret of market for your web browsing data. And I guess the part of this that's so interesting to me is that I, I didn't hear this about this in January, but basically, uh, Vice did a deep study based on publicly available information, some invoices, uh, some interviews that basically said that Avast, which is the free anti-virus software uh, uh, uh provider and they've got some some services for schools also some services that you can pay for um had a um something called Jumpshot and Jumpshot was a subsidiary of Avast and basically from Jumpshot you could companies could go to uh, Avast and purchase large banks of individual users browsing history and it did not come with the identity of the browser per se, oftentimes was by device. So in other words, it, this, this Windows computer has this browsing history, but it was easy enough to look at the browsing history that you could oftentimes reconstruct who the person was, or at least get a really good profile of them. And it was purported as being a very useful set of data. Companies like Home Depot, Microsoft, uh, uh, Pepsi, uh, uh, Google all purchased this uh, uh, data at one point or another. But the fact that you could buy something so detail-oriented, and having been a, pa- a past a vast user myself, I'm assuming that that information includes my surfing data as well. And even if you weren't incognito mode, um, even if you were otherwise taking steps to hide or obscure your data because of how foundational something like an antivirus software suite would be to the operating system, it did keep uh, a a track of all these individual pieces. And so I guess... um, you know, I, I maybe I'm just looking out more for this now, but it feels like that is part of what we call the tech correction, the notion that technology is going to have to figure out a way to exist in, in, in all of its powerfulness while being, you know, less creepy, less dealing in our personal data. I was just shocked to see this. And I also don't know why that, they, by the way, they announced within hours of the story being released that Avast said we're not, no longer doing jump shot. Um, they, they wound down operations immediately was the press release. But, uh, and again, within just hours, um, uh, after releasing that article. So I'd start with Wes. Is this news to you? Did you, did you hear of this earlier this year? I did, and I'm. I think we probably we may have had an article about it in the show previously. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is if you're not paying for it, be careful because you may be the product. We've we've said that, and that's like in the social dilemma. It's repeatedly mentioned a lot with with social media. Um, Peggy's asking in the chat, "What do we think of Avast?" And, and I replied, uh, "Ditch Avast. You don't need to run antivirus on your Mac." Um, for a while, we were running AV on both our Windows and, and Mac systems. We use Kaspersky, you know, for a while at school. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the antivirus environment has changed quite a bit because of different things that have happened in the past year to include 
you know, allegations of, of Kaspersky, you know, having such low level access to files that, you know, there were allegations that they were in cahoots with the Russian government as far as being able to, to get onto different computers and they got, you know, banned off all systems and then Windows uh, or Microsoft changed the way in which antivirus has been allowed to operate. And so my understanding, and I'm not currently running any Windows systems or responsible for any Windows systems, which is rather lovely, um, is that you just pretty much run the Microsoft, you know, security suite and, and antivirus now. But yeah, it, it, it was something that I heard about. It seems crazy. But then again, when you consider the fact that these companies have to monetize in some way, you're providing a free antivirus service. How do you monetize? Oh, we're selling the data of our users. And again, right. folks, this is Shoshana Zuboff surveillance capitalism. I've heard repeated podcasts and, and seen videos of her talking about her book. I have not read her book. It is a long, large book. But we all should be familiar with the concept and the economic model of surveillance capitalism because it is the underlying economic model that underpins the majority of our tech companies today. And it means that you and I are selling, our, our data is for sale. We are not profiting from it, but we are gaining free access to some different tools. So I would just, I would say user beware and also continually look at what it is you're running on your system. If you are not at least on an annual basis, wiping out the data on all the computer systems, phones and tablets that you own and that your family owns, you need to get on that because you need to be doing that. And then especially in the case of, you know, a, a Mac OS or a Windows OS system, look really carefully at the kinds of software that you're running and these things change. And just because back in the day I used to run, you know, Norton or whatever, it doesn't mean you need that today. Right. And I would also note as a part-time Windows user, I don't think you need third-party antivirus for Windows if you're running the latest version of Windows 10. Windows Defender right. has been um, uh, proven to be an effective antivirus, anti-malware software suite. In addition, if you are running antivirus software, oftentimes that can open up additional holes that could make you a bigger target for malware and other nastiness. And in the last couple of years, again, I'm, I listen periodically to security now, which is kind of where I get some of my, my geeky knowledge about that stuff. Um, uh, that they changed fundamentally the ways in which third party, uh, security and antivirus companies are able to interact with the Windows operating system. So I concur with what you're saying. Have you had any bouts with malware or viruses on your Windows system? It's in a while, Jason. I've, I've not. The last time I had anything really serious on my machine was probably 12 years ago. And, um, and it's when I was running, um, some more off brand, uh, software is, I guess, the way I would put it. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it, it was caught by whatever I had then for antivirus. But, uh, you know, part of it is that I'm extremely cautious and I don't open stuff and I don't install weird things on my machine. And I try to make sure that I know the providence of, of things that are installed on my machine. I don't utilize uh, pirated software. I buy stuff. Um, that's a lot easier, you know, uh, in, in 2020 than it was 15 years ago, because I think there's a lot of reasonably priced office suites and stuff, uh, including office 365 available for relatively inexpensively on a yearly basis, uh, to end users. But, um, the bottom line is, is that, you know, uh, download or beware. 
Uh, and I would I would add to that that as we are having students install things like Chrome extensions, um, I use the extension Moat today, M-O-T-E, so that my Spanish students could hear me narrating or not narrating, but you know just um, reading, uh, you know different sentences that they were using as a script. It was it was great. We're talking about, is this safe? How do I know? Well, my teacher is saying it, but if you were to go, how many downloads does it have? Um, you know, how, how are we going to ascertain that? That is an important skill that we need to help students as well as older adults um, acquire and develop. And that is, how do you know what to trust? And when you make that decision to say, yes, install, yes, you can read my Google account or whatever else, you know, you are making some significant decisions and you need to make sure that you trust whoever the developer is on the other side of that button. And that can be a challenge. Yep, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to some maybe um, a lighter topics. I don't think we have anything truly light. Um, I actually, Wes, where should we go next is, is about well, video. Here, here's one that's uh, in our favorite, favorite miscellaneous category. Um, this is from... Um, uh, Corey Doctorow, uh, who writes in this case for Slate, uh, and he's a, an author and, and has written sci-fi and is, um, you know, somebody that is, uh, certainly an interesting person when it comes to, you know, technology opinions and, 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 uh, you know, definitely a thought leader. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, his article is titled The Dangers of Cynical Sci-Fi Disaster Stories. This is from October 13th on Slate, and it says, I'm, the subtitle is, I'm changing how I write fiction for the benefit of the real world. And um, as I'm continuing to read and, and study more about artificial intelligence and thinking about, you know, visions of the future, and um, of course, media will tend to, to hype things uh, at times and, and portray, you know, perhaps, oh, you know, the sky is falling and dystopian Terminator future is here. Um, this is a great article talking about how important the stories that we read and the movies that we watch, you know, shape our perceptions and our ideas about the future. And he, he's saying that we need to have more optimistic visions of the future if we're going to have that future, because, you know, coders and developers and and legislators and everybody who's involved in shaping culture uh, play a role in this. And so uh, basically he's saying in this article, he's not just going to be, be writing uh, dystopian, um, you know, fantasy. He's, he's, he's going to be including, I think some hopeful and uh, optimistic uh, plot lines in the, in the stories that he writes about the future. So I'll just take that and say, uh, Jason, who are you, are you a sci-fi reader? And do you tend to, where are you in the, in the continuum of uh, dystopia to, you know, Jetson's utopia today with the future? I love dystopian literature. So I both, I, I, I watch a lot of television shows and movies and quite read, read quite a bit in that genre as well, though I prefer that in, in the cinema and on television, but love it. Uh, um, and apocalyptic literature, love it. And in fact, one of the things I did right after this whole mess started in March is I went back and watched the Matt Damon film, um, and I think it was called Contagion. I immediately went and and bought a digital download of it and watched it because, uh, and my wife's like, I, I can't do it, I can't do it. And it was actually weirdly informative and, and actually accurate. But the point being that, that I, I like that stuff, but I think that that, I mean, I think he's right. I think Corey's is smart to kind of head in that direction. And also the, um, 
the one thing I would say about a lot of dystopian literature is that oftentimes it has not quite a happy ending, but there's a hopeful upside to it, right? Like at the end of it, humanity shines through, or at the end of it, the humanity bands together to head back in, in the right direction, or yada, 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 which is kind of what I like about the genre. But um, I appreciate what he's talking about. I think he is correct. And, uh, you know, it's 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 a long-time genre. It's a, a, a four-century-old genre, uh, science fiction or fantasy-like like like stuff. And I think it's, it's interesting to play with the model. Let's uh we'll do another one that's a little bit uh kind of kind of interesting and different. This isn't there's there are there are a few uh you know tech correction uh tech dark uh, articles here. Um this one's also under mis- we got under miscellaneous. This is from Protocol, which I don't know that I've ever heard of this before on October the 14th. It's uh uh, I guess a new site. I should have Googled. I should have just added Wikipedia to find out about it. Why didn't I do that? Um, the title is Coursera's co-founder thinks Zoom doesn't work for learning. So she built an alternative. Uh, the Coursera, Coursera name should definitely uh, get your attention because that is a huge and popular platform for MOOCs and for just building, you know, online courses and online education. So Daphne Kohler is the co-founder that this article is talking about. And the video platform that she has built is called Engage LI, or maybe it's pronounced Engagely. I'm not sure. Um, and so she is not just taking what is being provided for business and, you know, corporations and, and probably just more business meetings uh, in the form of Zoom, uh, but she is trying to reinvent um, video conferencing. And so um, the article mentions the fact that, you know, eye tracking, you know, privacy concerns, mo- you know, monitoring students, that's a, an issue that they have decided not to embrace. Um, they are trying to focus in engagement mes- metrics on how much students are interacting with the platform and with each other. And uh, I just think it's it's pretty fascinating. So are, have you heard of Engagely, Jason? And do you guys use any synchronous video at this point with your courses for the academy or you guys are mostly async on Moodle. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we are primarily an asynchronous program. We, we have teachers that will run sessions with kids. Uh, our AP Calc teacher is probably the most prominent amongst that list that he'll run regular uh, study sessions with kiddos that want to get in and just kind of work through inking a problem with them. And, and he'll, you know, archive that and save it for later. And, um, you know, I would say that I've not heard Engagely. I do think that there needs to be something that, um, uh, there needs to be better tools for this. I keep thinking the more likely scenario rather than building a yet another uh, uh, video conferencing tool is that Google Meets or Teams or Zoom or one or all of the above are going to add in better learning tools to make it a, a better experience. Now, that said, that uh, I... I like Zoom. Zoom happens to be the video conferencing solution that the University of Montana has purchased for its its staff and students. And so I have access to a, a Zoom license and I've seen really effective Zoom teaching um, with breakout rooms and, and, and utilizing a nice ebb and flow. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I just clicked on request a demo. I'd like to see what this looks like. I, it, it wouldn't be something we would, we would likely utilize, but I do think there is some merit in the notion that someone in this space should have education first, even though it feels like to me that one of the existing platforms could, could, could easily add tools to make it better. 
Yeah. Well, I will say that I have really um, enjoyed uh, the uh, the enhancements to Google Meets yes. that have finally rolled out. Um, actually, I didn't check today. We've been waiting on breakout rooms, and there's there was they're supposed to be imminent. Uh, but the integration of Jamboard, um, you know, just easier access to some controls, uh, blurred backgrounds. Um, there's, you know, a few things that we've been been utilizing. So, again, with, uh, hey, I'll put in a plug for educational technology departments, right? If your school district and your organization, your educational organization does not have some educational technologists that are very well steeped in learning pedagogy and up on tools, it, it's really important, right? Um, just because you are invested in, you know, platform A and video conferencing solution B today, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that's where you're going to be forever uh, or where you should be. And, um, you know, that's that's something that's been a mi- technology overall has been a mission creep kind of thing in a lot of organizations where it's just gotten more and more important. Uh, and and there are a number of organizations that haven't staffed and, and scoped and staffed for the importance of of the educational technology and the technology support you know side of I.T. So anyway, a short little rant about that. Where would you like to go next? Uh, let's see here. Let's talk about some Google stuff. Uh, lots of interesting things from Google World, and I'll kind of I'll, I'll kind of get through these kind of quickly, and then uh, uh, feel free to jump in and comment, Wes. First and foremost, Android Central reporting on October fourteenth that Google is once again extending the life of Chromebooks. Now it's nine or ten years on most released Chromebooks. This is excellent news. I think this is something that's really important uh, to have longevity with these devices. However, there's a massive caveat here. That um, and I there's there's a blog post in my head somewhere on this. I need to find the time and the patience with my writing to be able to do it. The only problem with this is that it, in my mind, diminishes the fact that the predominantly large number of Chromebooks that are sold are low end Chromebooks. And what I don't want to happen, even though I know that uh, uh, there's a lot of desire on the part of IT directors adopting Chromebooks, they could get six, seven, eight, nine, ten years out of a device. The bottom line is if you're buying low end Chromebooks, asking it to do six, well, actually asking it to do four or five years, I think is too much because as the technology gets more complex, and I mean the technology, including on the minimalistic Chromebook, the web becomes more complex. The lower end Chromebooks are going to slow to a crawl. It's going to ultimately create a scenario where the Chromebook itself is unusable for most common learning tasks. And I think this is really great news if you're utilizing a higher end Chromebook. Uh, this is the, uh, my, my, uh, I, it's not my favorite Chromebook. I have lots of, of Chromebooks that I like, but, uh, this is the, uh, 2018 HP 14, uh, X360, which is an i3, uh, eighth generation i3 chip, eight gigabytes of RAM, 64 gigabytes of storage. It has a 1080 uh, screen, a 1080p screen. Um, I was able to get this uh, dirt cheap on eBay because I don't think the person that was selling it knew what they were selling. They just thought of it as a Chromebook, but 
this Chromebook uh, will go to 2025 uh, uh, in the um, the updates. That's seven years that this Chromebook is going to receive updates. This Chromebook will probably be speedy enough in five years from now to be able to serve the modern web up, no matter what Chrome OS looks like. But if you're talking about other Chromebooks that were sold in 2018, they oftentimes had slow Celeron chips. N4000 chips were very popular in 2018. Uh, there were still Chromebooks being sold with two gigabytes of RAM, although four has become the standard. I honestly think eight for most learning exercises would be a minimum that I would look for. And I just don't think it's realistic uh, to expect a Chromebook uh, that's that's built to be value priced, right? The $169 Chromebook, the $200 Chromebook, the slow seller on chips to be a realistic solution uh, for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And so again, I'm, I'm happy about this, but I think there has to be a caveat with articles like this. And I can absolutely attest to that because all of our fifth graders are on Chromebooks and we have some older Chromebooks that need to be replaced and are on schedule to be replaced. And when we practice some remote learning in the classroom, muting all of our mics and getting on the Google Meet, uh, it was a it was a mess. And I'm also just seeing because I asked my kids to record with Screencastify, you know, the delay in simply clicking the Screencastify icon and having it show up to either start or stop a recording. It's dramatically different with these older Chromebooks. And I believe we need kids to be creating content, not simply consuming it. Yep. And the, the uh, kinds of apps and extensions and things like that that allow students to do that on Chromebooks, they require memory they they have some complexity so totally agree and that should also be a part of your your not just it strategy but your overall school budget right should be your refresh and what the refresh plan is and it shouldn't be kids are going to use this thing for 10 years you know and, and even five years if you're using max you're going to be able to stretch that quite a bit more not so you know with chromebooks and uh, that that just needs to be part of our cost of doing business as schools is that part of the devices that that we provide or maybe you are BYOD and you're asking parents to do that you need to to make sure that 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 hardware is up to the uh capabilities and requirements of the modern web Yep, absolutely. And so um, now let's check some position that with another article. This is from, I think, from today's Ver, uh, Verge. Um, Acer is going to release an interesting Chromebook. Uh, and my understanding is it's later this year, early next year. It's the Chromebook Spin 513, which is the very first Chromebook with a Snapdragon chip in it. And for those of you that are unaware of kind of chipsets in a mobile phone, Snapdragon is the high-end chipset available for Android phones and uh, the Galaxy Note 20 which is the the high-end Samsung phone uses a very fast Snapdragon chip in it. It They have three levels of chips. It uses the highest end chip to provide performance. And like we talked about last week, remember these ARM-based chips that we're talking about, 100 times or 100,000 times more powerful than the the uh, Apollo landing uh, uh, vessels computers, right? We're talking about extraordinary uh, computing power in your pocket. But Acer's will be the first one that uses uses a Snap Snapdragon chip, and then you you juxtaposition that with Chrome Unboxes article from October 16th that ARM processors may be really important to the future of Chrome OS because there are now 
now extremely speedy ARM chips. It's so speedy. Remember that Apple's moving towards this, right? Apple Silicon, which is the, the Apple chips that they're developing internally or is based on an ARM processor architecture. And now that Chromebooks are coming out, they've been ARM chip Chromebooks out for some time. They've been notoriously slow, good with battery life, but not super speedy machines. These new generations of ARM chips could really make a huge difference, both in providing a value-based Chromebook, but also one that can process the web uh, in extraordinary ways. So it could be at some point, and maybe this is what, what Google is really moving towards, that 10 years could be realistic when it comes to Chrome OS uh, being supported, because if these fast, cheap ARM chips end up dominating the marketplace and create speedy, speedy, speedy machines, who knows what can happen. This is the ongoing march of Moore's Law, right? Moore's Law is the, the doubling of processing power and the, the halving of halving of costs. I'm saying that right. Um, it, you know, about every 18 months is what it was. And there have been different, you know, pro prognostications of folks saying, oh, it's going to end. It's going to stop. Uh, but we've seen for different reasons this this continued march where, you know, processors are faster and faster and they're cheaper and cheaper. And so we're at the point now where mobile phones have such powerful processors that companies like Apple and, as you said, like um, Acer and others are saying, hey, you know, this is the processor that we can, you know, put into our computers. And I, and I think this is absolutely the, the wave of the future for high end video editing systems and, and, and some servers and things like that. I mean, we'll continue to, to see other, other chip options, but, uh, we definitely see that roadmap coming from Apple, as you said, with the Apple silicone. That's going to open up interesting possibilities as far as interoperability with apps as well as, uh, software and then also touch interfaces and, all kinds of things. And for consumers, it should be good because it means probably lower power consumption. That means longer battery life and, you know, acceptable performance, which, you know, now is just like, yeah, that that's really fast. That's that's kind of all I need. I mean, who really does need a faster processor in their phone at this point? I mean, they're, Apple's continuing to, and, and also I'm sure Android and, and others invent, you know, new image processing technologies that, that just, you know, are amazing, but yeah, last year's technology was was pretty amazing, and uh, the processors are are pretty incredible. That can do you know however many you know billion calculations a second or whatever they do now. Yep, absolutely. And then Wes, I know you dropped a couple articles in about the Department of Justice antitrust case against Google. You want to jump on those? Yeah, definitely. So this is an Ars Technica article from yesterday on October the 20th, and it's um, from Kate Cox titled, What We Know About the DOJ's Antitrust Case Against Google So Far. And, <laughs> of course, probably the most important thing to note is this is in a political season where we have a election that is just around the corner. But these investigations have been going for a long time. And as she notes in the article, the Department of Justice doesn't issue these kinds of antitrust um, cases uh, very often. You know, we had we had the big one against AT&T, pardon me, which led to the breakup uh, eventually. And then, of course, they merged again. Uh, and then we had uh, Microsoft that had antitrust. But um, this is getting to the heart of some of these deals we've talked about. We've talked about Firefox recently on the show and how really most of the money Firefox makes is from Google because they keep uh, Google as their predominant search engine and, and Google pays money for that. And so this particular lawsuit is surrounding is focused mainly upon Google's dominance of the search 
uh, industry, uh, the search market. You know, they, they dominate something like 90 plus percent of all Internet searches. Google is saying in their response that this isn't going to impact and benefit consumers. I am not a lawyer, but what I one of the things that I seem to remember hearing about antitrust, at least historically, is that the impact to consumers is significant. And um, anyway, that's what Google is issuing as its initial response is that, you know, this is about consumers. The case is talking about competitors and saying, you know, that competitors are not able to, uh, you know, enter the market, um, you know, move and, and gain market share because of uh, Google's um, uh, Google's dominance. What's also at play here is something we've talked about on the show before called network effects. And that's when large players gain a dominant foothold and then they tend to maintain that. And they do that in a variety of ways. So I certainly think that this is this is political. We don't really know what the Biden campaign, as, as uh, Kate notes at the end of the article, where they really lie on a lot of these things. They haven't really said a lot um, about uh, technology companies. And, you know, if indeed uh, Biden wins the election on November 3rd and whenever that might happen, that's going to be pretty interesting. We may even talk, end up talking about that a little bit in November. I mean, it's it's going to be crazy, folks. I don't know if uh, you're reading current events, but it is really going to be a pretty interesting election uh, and aftermath, too. It's not just going to necessarily be over on, uh, you know, November 4th. I, I'd be level if it was. Right. <clears throat> but anyway, um, I think this will definitely uh, be affected by the, the winds of change if, if we have someone uh, different in the White House. But overall, you know, the issue of technology companies and their power, how large they are, we, we talked briefly on the show last week about, you know, this assertion that some folks have with regarding social dilemma and regulation that, oh, the, the company should just be broken up. Well, I mean, that that doesn't get at underlying issues. And, um, you know, we don't know at this point whether this is a big deal or not. We know the Department of Justice doesn't doesn't issue many, um, you know, uh, any investigations or cases, I guess, or, or lawsuits like this. Uh, but, but it will remain to be seen whether this is going to continue, you know, post, uh, new, new election. And we, um, also don't know, you know, if it's going to stick. So any thoughts you have on that? Uh, well, I mean, obviously it, in my mind, it's part of the broader conversations we're having about, you know, the, the regulation piece of this. Uh, the bottom line for me is that I, 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 I've been slow to come to this. I think there's something the government needs to do here. I don't think antitrust action is the answer. And I also note that I think Google is, is right, from my opinion, that no one's forced to use Google. There are plenty of market alternatives to every other or every product they offer, right? There's other phone operating systems. There's other office suites, web-based office suites. There's other search engines. And those are um, available. They're not hard to switch from one to another. In fact, there are tools available that do it for you. And in fact, Google itself has been so sensitive about not being the only one in X, Y, and Z markets. They financially uh, uh, held up Firefox to make sure that there is another alternative browser in 
the market to make sure that it doesn't go too far in the direction of, of, of holding too much power. And I guess the bottom line is, I mean, there's there's two people on, on this call tonight. One of us uses Apple-based stuff for that. The other one uses Google-based stuff for that. We've both made intelligent decisions about where we fit in the marketplace. And I think that's true uh, 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 of, of schools uh, buying for their students. I think it's true of parents buying for their kids. I think it's true for parents and adults buying for themselves that you have choices you can make. And to be honest, I think it's better to be in one of the ecosystems, right? Whether you're in the Apple ecosystem or the Microsoft ecosystem or the Google ecosystem. But the bottom line is, is that I don't think a lot of people really think that much about this and may even buy equipment that sometimes conflicts with the easiness of its applicability to the ecosystem that they're in because they like the product, right? They like the form factor. They like the price. They like something about that. So um, I think it's very interesting that Google has already published a very uh, in-depth response. The legal counsel is already making the case to the press. I think that's a sign that they feel that, that they're confident about this. Uh, and, and I agree, it could very much hinge on results from November 3rd, but we shall see. And uh, a quite good question uh, Peggy has in the chat talking about, you know, uh, why can't consumers, you know, use the search engine they prefer? I mean, they can. We, we can search yeah. it or we can change, you know, that's but the, the lawsuit is really about alleged anti-competitive behaviors. Think about Microsoft and the way in which they were, quote unquote, bundling Internet Explorer, you know, making it essential and you just couldn't uninstall it. And um, that was, you know, what led to some I think it was a, a, a ruling against them. You know, if you are market dominant, there are limits to what you can do to maintain that dominance. And that's where antitrust comes in. So um, Europe and uh, the kinds of things that uh, the European regulators are, are alleging it, this is not just search. This goes beyond that, but um, this is the tech correction folks. This is government and, and legal folks pushing back against tech companies, against their power, um, against their behavior, trying to curb their behavior and trying to have regulatory remedies that would change behavior of corporations. So definitely the bread and butter of the tech correction, although this is in the search category. Yep, absolutely. Uh, let's actually pick up um, an Atlantic article from yesterday, October 20th. Uh, this is going to touch on some politics, um, but this the, this author, if you don't follow her, like just stop everything right now and go follow No Upside. That is Renee DeResta. She's the author of this article. This is from The Atlantic. It's called The Rights Disinformation Machine is Getting Ready for Trump to Lose. And the subtitle is QAnon has become a linchpin of far right media and the effort to preemptively delegitimize the election. And without going completely down the rabbit hole of let's talk election politics. Um, this is a fantastic article that traces the history of QAnon, which we have talked about multiple times on the show, which is what I would call a fruit loop conspiracy, right? It is talking about, you know, a cabal of both democratic, uh, elected officials and deep state officials and Hollywood officials who, who are, you know, satanic, um, uh, worshippers and traffic in 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 uh, you know child child you know children and it's just it's really a, a wild thing. Pizzagate is connected to it. Deresta 
in this article lays out an excellent, not only history of where QAnon and conspiracy theory has, has come in the past few years, the roles that the platforms, specifically Facebook, but also YouTube and, uh, you know, probably to a let, well, Twitter as well, but, but particularly, uh, Facebook and, and YouTube have played in, in pushing this fringe conspiracy information to people and the ways in which this has become more and more mainstream. And she makes some really fascinating and important points here about differences between mainstream and social media and the ways that it really is not mattering as much in terms of how the agenda and the, the issues of the day and what's trending, uh, you know, how that's happening. This is a fantastic article. And I put Duresta up, you know, right at the top of, of, of some of the trusted folks that I really respect in terms of their understanding of the information environment, the ways in which it's changed, the ways in which it has been weaponized and continues to be weaponized by bad actors with malicious intent. And like, it's not good news because we haven't had systemic changes. We've had, and we've got some other articles that we may not get to yet, which some of those were from last week about how YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, we talked about some of them last week, have been taking some steps to try and curb this content, but it's really too little, too late. And the ways in which these you know, conspiracy theories have become a significant player in the political environment. That's not going to change just because we we have an election. So you want to touch any of that, Dr. Nyfer? Yeah, it's it's interesting you should mention this. Uh, I watched, I, I'm a big West Wing fan. I've watched through the whole series more times than I care to say. And I've been trying to get off the West Wing, to be honest. I want to take a little break from it, uh, 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 maybe until the new year. and. There was a special on HBO Max last week where they took a an episode of The West Wing and did a, a theatrical reading of it, a stage reading of it, uh, in support of voting. And one of the things they talked about, uh, they had some breaks. They were working with a nonprofit, a uh, bipartisan nonprofit on voting. They were talking about uh, how important it is that it, – it, that this year, right, that we need to be extremely conscious on election day and after, so November 3rd and after, uh, whether or not the presidential race is decided on November 3rd or, 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 or congressional seats, Senate seats, governorships, even local elections, that because it is in such an extraordinary time, because of the movement towards mail ballots, because of the legal wrangling, that do not, it's going to look differently, but don't, don't let your guard down in, in being a good savvy consumer of information. And they even mentioned, uh, kind of some of the things we talk about here, verifying sources, do not spread misinformation, uh, that you can't verify from other mainstream sources. They specifically called out the AP and Reuters as places to go because it's more of a news source as opposed to opinion based journalism. Um, and, and I just thought that was really interesting of that take. And I guess 
guess uh, as a political observer and also I, 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 I mean, my, my undergraduate degrees in political science is the stuff I used to study and teach about. Um, I guess I knew that it was going to be a significant issue on November 3rd, right? I think the election is going to be close enough at the federal level. I think there's a lot of, of heavily contested House and Senate seats that are up for uh, uh, election. I think that we just need to not uh, expect to not get the full picture on, on November 3rd and then utilize and model this for others. If you are talking about politics on social media, don't spread information from, you know, Bernard's blog land. Um, instead, you know, to f- before you post anything, before you comment, go read other sources, right? Even if you are focused on opinion journalism, go look at the other side uh, of your political opinion and juxtapose those two views with each other. I think that's the kind of stuff we need to be prepared for. Lateral reading is what you're talking about. And in addition, it's just checking out the source. In fact, I'm trying to do that with protocol right now. Add the word Wikipedia to the domain name of the website that has the, the, the source and see what folks on Wikipedia have said. And you can even look at the talk page and if there's argument and debate about it, uh, we've got to be checking out sources. And, and if the source on its face is not credible, then like full stop that you don't need to go any further. You don't even need to read the article. Um, it's just, it, it's vital. We're not, by the way, going to media literacy educate ourselves out of this uh, in the short term, but I don't even think we are in the long term. I think that's a necessary requirement that we need to be doing at, at all levels. You know, as soon as students are using the internet to get information, we need to be talking about media literacy, uh, but it's going to be, it's going to have to be partnered with, um, uh, with a, with a broad strategy, and that is going to include, in Wes's humble opinion, you know, some regulation and uh, some rules that are going to need to be, you know, issued by not only governments but maybe even international bodies. And it's this is this is something that's going to take a while to do, and it's going to. I think I think this is going to be an unprecedented um, election, and I think that sadly we're. I don't know. I just I don't I don't really look forward to the conversations I'm afraid we'll have in November uh, shortly after it, because, you know, we, what we hope is that we're going to have elections that are, you know, decided and that's it. Um, I don't think that's going to that's going to be happening. And the information environment and what Duress is talking about in this article, it, it plays directly into it because that is fanning the flames of folks who are questioning you know, the legitimacy of things like mail-in voting and um, just the electoral process overall and, and some, some other things. It's, it's troubling. Time will tell. Maybe I will be completely wrong, and I would love to, to be wrong in this case. Yep, absolutely. Well, sir, it appears we are at the top of the hour. Is there anything else we need to get to before we head to our Geeks of the Week? I think we can uh, proceed. So I'll go quick. I've got two uh, short little two-minute video from the YouTube creators. If you don't follow that and you're at all creating videos, it's an excellent uh, Twitter channel to follow or Twitter yeah, channel to follow as well as, of course, YouTube channel. And it's just called How to Trim Your Videos with the Video Editor. So YouTube's fully transitioned over into what they call the YouTube Studio. And I really like the changes and just had to make some some edits. I actually... Uh, had a, had a Spanish spelling or not spelling a Spanish speaking error at the beginning of a video. So whoop, just kind of took that and, and, uh, trimmed the front of that. And it was just really fast to do in the YouTube uh, video editor. So that's great. And then, uh, the second one is just a podcast recommendation. Um, 
There's a really, really fantastic podcast from the New York Times that is called Sway. Um, that is by Kara Swisher. And she has an episode from the end of September. Uh, this is an interview with Elon Musk. And it's titled AI Doesn't Need to Hate Us to Destroy Us. But that's kind of a, a silly title. He really goes into a lot of the projects that he's involved with, um, to you know, from SpaceX to Tesla to batteries to Neuralink. Just super fascinating, right? And Elon Musk is something, somebody who is important to follow and track and is doing things that are changing the world. So I would recommend that podcast. How about you, Dr. Neifer? Just an interesting uh, uh, an additional service to play around with if you are kind of a cell phone service hopper, as some folks are. Um, I am continually looking at new alternatives for my in-laws because they live in an Internet dead zone. No wired Internet is available to them. And I won't go through the long story of, of the kind of rigged up system that I have right now for them. But we're experimenting a little bit with Visible, which is a, a subsidiary of Verizon. It goes over Verizon Towers, and it has unlimited hotspot and unlimited data uh, for uh, up or de- as little as $25 a month if you take advantage of their party pay plan. So uh, Visible.com, uh, great subreddit of, of Visible users, some of which are happy, some of which are not, in case you're looking for cheaper uh, cell phone service. Sounds good. Well, Dr. Fryer, we are we are past the top of the hour. Where can people find you on the Internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I periodically post. I think I actually wrote a post the uh, night before last. And I am sharing my media literacy and Spanish curriculum on mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you? I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter, and I work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog at ncc.org. And just a little promo there, um, their virtual conference in 2021, uh, registration opens up in early November. That's not been announced yet, so uh, stay tuned. It will be a discounted price for an excellent virtual conference, one of the best uh, a smaller tech conferences in the country. Come meet a great group of people that know their stuff www.ncc.org but this thing here is the edtech situation room podcast we are a once a week podcast on wednesday nights at 9 p.m central 8 p.m mountain somewhere in the middle of the night utc if you happen to be in western europe but hey if you can't join us live although we'd love it if you do feel free to go to our website edtechsr.com where you can see the links for each week download tiny mp3s of the podcast you can go to youtube i just noticed dr fryer that last week's episode had two 299 views uh, on um, our, I know, I was on YouTube? Uh, on YouTube, 299 views of episode number 194. Apparently the cool kids are going to YouTube. The robots to, got us, guys. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Apparently so, for the EdTech Situation Room. Or you can download us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Um, in the meantime, we hope you stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Adios.